and being able to make people feel like that, they should feel it everywhere they are at this university, everywhere they are, whether they're talking to a staff member, they're sitting in class, and if they don't, and there's something we can do about that, I want them to feel safe enough to know that they can come and say that and know, given the context, I know y'all wanted me to feel okay here and I'm not feeling it because that person was dealing with microaggression or something. Know that that is something that we would welcome. Now, I'm not saying we can take care of everything, mm -hmm. but I want every single person who hears this to believe that this is the place you belong that honors you as a student and whatever your individual journey is. And as MBA students coming in, that journey will not be easy, but knowing we have your back ought to make you feel real good about being able to take that journey. You came to the right place. Hello again, and welcome back to Dogs on Top, our podcast about the Georgia MBA, where we share our stories about our students, faculty, and staff, and what it's like to be a part of the program, the Terry College of Business, and the University of Georgia. I'm Deirdre Kane, your host and the Director of Admissions for the Full-Time MBA. This podcast started at the beginning of the pandemic as an effort to bring the program in Athens to incoming students and prospective applicants. Then, on May 25th, with the murder of George Floyd, the nation added civil unrest to a horrible pandemic. This country is experiencing an imperfect storm of pain and suffering. Personally, I often feel overwhelmed, and like every day, I'm stepping into a void where so much is uncertain and so much needs to change. Since I know many others are struggling with all of this as well, I invited a member of the Terry faculty today who in my nine years with UGA has unfailingly tackled the difficult issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion with the words of a scholar, the humor of a stand-up comedian, and the heart of a social justice warrior. Dr. Don D. Bennett Alexander has been with UGA and the Terry College since 1988 and is a tenured associate professor of employment law and legal studies. Born and raised in DC, she graduated from Howard University School of Law and Federal Sidri College, now known as the University of the District of Columbia. During her time at Terry, she has earned more than 50 awards for teaching and service, including the 2019 Minority Services and Programs Honored Trailblazer Tribute the 2017 award for UGA's Best Diversity and Inclusion Program, the 2016 Women's Studies Professor of the Year, and one of UGA Student Government Association's 10 Outstanding Professors of the Year, and also the 2015 National $25,000 Elizabeth Herlock Beckman Award for Excellence in Teaching. The Beckman Award arises from being recommended by a student who has accomplished something significant for the community who attributes it to their professor's influence. Dr. Bennett Alexander used her award to establish an endowed scholarship at the university for students who engage in diversity work to build bridges of understanding. In 2015, Dr. Bennett Alexander delivered a TED Talk on practical diversity that now has over 124,000 views, and she is a 2011 recipient of the University of Georgia's highest award for diversity, the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Building Bridges Award. As a Fulbright senior scholar, she taught and conducted research on race and gender at the Ghana School of Law in Ghana, West Africa for 10 months. Before coming into academia, Dr. Bennett Alexander worked in legal capacities in Washington, D.C. at the D.C. Court of Appeals, the highest court in D.C., as law clerk to the Honorable Julia Cooper Mack, 
the first black female appointed to a court of last resort in the U.S. Also, she was on the White House Domestic Council, serving as assistant to the associate director and general counsel, the Federal Trade Commission's Antitrust Division, and the Federal Labor Relations Authority, litigating federal sector labor law cases. She also taught at Antioch School of Law in their National Farm Worker Paralegal Training Program. Before coming to UGA, she taught at the University of North Florida and served as a special master in labor mediation and arbitration for the Florida Public Employees Relations Commission. She has published extensively in the employment law area with particular emphasis on race, gender, and sexual orientation issues. In 1994, she co-authored a first-of-its-kind textbook, Employment Law for Business with McGraw-Hill, which established the discipline in colleges of business. The text is now in its ninth edition and remains the leading text in the country in its discipline. She also co-authored The Legal, Ethical, and Regulatory Environment of Business in a Diverse Society, also published by McGraw-Hill, and The Legal, Ethical, and Regulatory Environment Business, published by Southwestern Publishing Company. In 2018, she published her first e-textbook, Contemporary Contracts for Great River Learning. Dr. Bennett Alexander has conducted diversity and employment law seminars for the public and private sector since 1985 and has been featured in media across the country, including NPR, The Wall Street Journal, USA Today, Fortune Magazine, Georgia Trend, The Houston Chronicle, The Atlanta Journal, and Constitution. In sum, she is a treasure for the University of Georgia and the Terry College. She dedicates all of her diversity, inclusion, and equity work to her ancestors, three daughters, and two grandchildren. Dr. Bennett Alexander, welcome to the show, and thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. You are so welcome. I'm so glad that you all are doing this podcast, too, for the incoming students and the students that are here. It's a wonderful way to connect, to get people into knowing what the place is about. Well, I think getting, really conveying, you know, what's so special about Athens University is really a hard thing to do, right? It's hard to really peel back that onion. And so, you know, I was stuck home with the pandemic and thought, it's time to do the podcast that I've been talking about. So here we are. Um, And certainly talking to you is timely, even though I know it adds something to your plate right now, Um, (laughs) which is never easy, but you have never said no to me. So I thought I'd give it a go. That's true, D.D., because you do good work. I keep trying. Um, but, I, you know, I've been with the college in 2011, and if you remember, um, there's a lot I don't know and haven't experienced, but if you remember, I came to your office about nine years ago and, and met with you just to get to know you and say hello. You talked about a lot when I, I met with you, and some of which, of course, I don't remember because that's me, but one of the things I remember is that you spoke about being one of the university's first black faculty members. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to start there today um, because what I'd really also like to do is provide people listening with somewhat of a long view. Absolutely. Because I think we have to, in times when we're really stressed out, take the long view of history um, and look to history as a guide. So what was it like for you to be one of the first black faculty members and a woman at the University of Georgia? Um, Lonesome. Um, but it really helped to understand what I was getting into and to have had that as my mission when I came. Um, I had just built the house I thought I would be in forever, me and my partner, and I had two young daughters at the time who were seven and nine. And um, 
I didn't think I was going anywhere. I had been at the University of North Florida for five years. I was very happy there. And out of the blue, I got a call from people I knew at my national organization of professors who taught law in colleges of business saying that the University of Georgia was looking for someone. I told them I was not the least bit interested. (laughs) And they kept calling back and I kept saying no. And finally, I thought, you know, maybe this is the universe at work. At least I should talk to them. I even tried to pawn them off on my husband, who who was from South Carolina. And I thought maybe he'd be interested in something like that. And (laughs) as it turns out, when I came and met with the president, who was Chuck Knapp at the time, um, he said to me, he had just come himself, and he had been, uh, he came from D.C., and he had said, we need to move forward, and can you help me come and do that? And I thought, you know what, like King said, if not you, who? If not now, when? And two years before, the University of Georgia had had, uh, this was in 86, I came, 87, I came in 88, January of 88. In 85, there were people on my faculty that were graduates of the University of Georgia and never missed a home game. They traveled back from Jacksonville every home game. And, you know, they really love this place. And I remember them being so excited the year before when there was this 200th anniversary. And I just remember my thought being, 200 years, and these people don't have any more black folks than this, and any more black students, that's <laughs> disgusting. And this was a year before. As it turns out, mm-hmm. they came knocking. What the hell could I do except for say yes, considering what I had said in my head? So not if not you, who was real? If not now, when? There you go. So that's what I've been trying to do ever since. So coming in as one of the few black faculty, I'm, I'm, let me tell you this. They told me there were 14. I swear, I, I haven't seen 14 to this day of those people that they said were here at the time. I don't know where they were. Maybe they were on some other campus. But um, I knew that there weren't going to be a lot. I knew it was going to be lonesome in the sense that you wouldn't see yourself reflected in a classroom. You wouldn't see yourself reflected in a meeting. You wouldn't see yourself reflected anywhere in the university. But I knew I had work to do. And I knew not everybody was willing to do that work. And even though I had young children, I knew it was important for me to do that work for them too, whether they chose to come to the university or not. The work needed to be done. I mean, at some point, it has to be, it, it comes down to people. The theory is nice, but it comes down to people. We are the ones who people this. So it, in theory, it would be nice to say the University of Georgia ought to do more, but that's going to have to happen through people. I turned out to be the people. So while it was, you know, lonesome and didn't feel good, the truth is that wasn't my area of concentration. What my area of concentration was, can we make a difference here? Can we make the University of Georgia live up to what it should and end up moving forward? And boy, has that happened. So it's sort of that, having that mission and seeing things move forward, what kept you here then? I mean, you you have had a very storied career here, right, since 1988. I have. And if I recall, you even tried to retire once before, and then you came back, so you blew it. Girl, I tried, but the universe was not hearing it. I really wanted to do that, and um, it just so happened to coincide with the retirement of one president and the coming in of another one, and um, things just 
coalesced in a way that made it so I ended up staying here through <laughs> no want of mine. But it was, <laughs> it has been the, the that was in, it, I would have retired in 2014. This has been okay. the best, and the president came in in 2013, best time ever I was supposed to stay. I, I understand why I was here. I was supposed to be here. And now I can feel comfortable leaving after fall semester. It's like okay. I've done my job. What then, you know, since you do have this long view of the university and even, even of the South, um, which I'm from the North, so I'm still mm-hmm. learning that as well. But what is your perspective now on where things are today versus how they were when you came? What, you know, you say things are better, which I think people need to hear. Oh, my goodness, better. Yeah. Let me give you a couple of examples. When I first came, and, and, and I'm like you, I grew up in the North in the sense that I grew up in D.C., but my family had been sharecroppers. My dad started out as a sharecropper. My mom is a migrant farm worker in North Carolina, where my family had been since slavery ended. And um, we didn't go back to North Carolina, but my grandparents had moved to uh, Virginia. They were country folk who had been, for generations, farm workers, so they brought that with them. So they were in a city, but sort of still not of the city. So I got a real um, sort of sense of what that would have been like through seeing them in Norfolk, Virginia, a city that had not taken out of them their country roots. The reason that becomes important is because when I was 12, I remember being in a library in D.C., and reading a book. It was a poetry book. And uh, just sort of flipping through, trying to figure out whether I wanted to take it with me. And I came across a poem by Paul Lawrence Dunbar called In the Morning. And it started out, lies, lies, blessed Lord, don't you know the days abroad? If you don't get up, you scamp. There'll be trouble in this year camp. Think I kind of let you sleep while I make your boat and keep? Huh, that's a pretty how to do. Lies, don't you hear me, you? I had no clue what that said. I can say it to you now, but I, when I read those words as a 12-year-old, I had no clue. And I kept thinking, but it's in a book. I should understand this. It's words. It's English. And it, I, I just sort of kept on working with it with that idea in mind. And I realized I was hearing my grandparents. Oh, my God. I was hearing my grandparents. It meant that they were bigger than just my country grandparents that as somebody coming from D.C., I would have been embarrassed about. They had a context, and they were not alone. This man, Paul Lawrence Dunbar, who turns out to be, or turned out to be uh, an extremely important black poet whose mother was born into slavery, so he was there during that time of moving out of it, but there with so many people who were in it, he was surrounded by that. Um, I realized that this was a really important piece for me to be able to understand. The reason that became important was because I knew my grandparents as people I loved, and I knew that their transition from where they were to where my dad, who was a college graduate, was to where me and my siblings were uh, as somebody who was the kids of 
somebody who owned a house, which was a big deal, somebody who worked for the federal government, which was a big deal, uh, being black in D.C. at the time, um, that was not that big of a difference. So I get to the University of, first of all, the University of North Florida. I get there in June. I went back home December, and I was telling my dad, you know, he was asking me how it was, and we had talked in between, but you know, we really got, we were able to sit down and talk. And I said to him, you know, Daddy, it's really weird because, like, the black people there, they won't even look white people in the eye when they're talking to them. It's so strange. I mean, you know, I'm used to looking at people and talking to them, right? You have a conversation. I said, they won't even look at them in the eye. Well, I now know he heard that a very different way because he had come through a very different time that let him understand that. I had come through the black power movement. That was what was blossoming when I was in college. That was not my dad's experience. He had served in a segregated Navy. He had served in a segregated federal government that was set up by President Wilson, who, thank God, they just this weekend took his name off of Princeton's International Affairs Building because of his racist policies. He had segregated the federal government. Well, my dad had worked in all of that, so when he heard what I said, he thought about it a very different way, and his simple sentence to me was, what are you going to do about it? Hmm. And I thought, did he just now hear what I said? Like, what is he talking about? And my dad loved me to pieces. But it was like, you're not hearing me on this one. Like, I just told you something really significant, and you gave me some answer that sounded like you didn't hear what I said. But I kept thinking about that. I thought about it for a long time, and I realized it finally dawned on me. The reason he said that to me, and it brings tears to my eyes to even think about it, is because he knew I could do something about it. I had no idea what that was, but I knew I would know when it was time. When I got to the University of Georgia, and they were still using the word, you know, segregation, integration, and I'm thinking, wasn't that like a while back? Why are we still using that language? Um, And I also saw what was going on, for instance, in the newspaper. In the newspaper, when you picked up an article to read it, it would say, you know, Dee Dee White was talking to Dawn, who was black, and about this program that was going on. And it would be like, I kept reading, because, you know, you read the words mean something, right? So I'm like, okay, I don't understand what that had to do with anything, because this is not what that was about. So I finally wrote to the newspaper, and I said, I don't understand why you're using... You're, you're telling what race people are in an article that has nothing to do with race. Now, if you're trying to describe to me somebody, you know, and tell me to be on the lookout for them, that's one thing. But just in regular, everyday news to have that, well, they changed it. At the university, I was the first one. The president asked me to do, he started a new series of speakers, new speaker series, campus-wide. And I was the first one he asked to do a presentation. And I said, on what? And he said, on anything you want to. And I'm like, what? (laughs) Oh, my God. You did not just now tell me that. Well, of course, it was on the idea of race. Only nobody had ever used the word diversity at the university. It wasn't a word you heard. And over Tate, you know how at Tate Plaza, they have the great big sign announcing things. There it was, diversity, listen without prejudice. That was the name of my presentation. Well, that within days took off 
and it was on the radio. I mean, literally, like, diversity, listen without prejudice. That became somebody's tagline, right? So it really made me understand that people, because I refused to use that old language, it just kept you in that same place, that people were ready to move forward and how that would happen um, would sort of reveal itself over time. But whatever it was, just like in talking to you, I would be willing to participate in if it was something that was going to accomplish that. And it has done that in spades. And what, what year was that talk? That talk had to be 90 or so, 90, 91 or 92. And that word ended up getting picked up from all over. And you want to know where I got that word from? I love this. I read everything, okay? I'm just, I'm a bibliophile. I have bookcases all over my house. And I read everything because I never know when the universe is going to bring me something that I need. Well, my daughters went to private school because it was actually pretty violent when they were in school and I had to put them in private school. And they never gave a crap about it after they left, right? But one day we get this, you know, the little things that they send out for alum and stuff. And I happen to be flipping through it, have no clue why. It's not like I was connected to these people. But I was reading glancing through a piece that was written by their, um, uh, the head of their class, right? And, and he may have been the valedictorian. And he was talking about how their, people needed to get together, you know, that there needed to be this diversity of, of, of thoughts and all of this. And I thought, diversity, what a good way to put that. <laughs> And he wasn't even using it in the sense that we know it now. He was truly just using it as the word it used to be. But that word I took, and that word just took off. And now diversity is like what we think of as this whole mm -hmm. area. Mm -hmm. And we, we were even forced to add on to it equity and inclusion. Yes, you know, like yes. It's become bigger than that. That has become, <laughs> that was written, you know, I, I have been at this long enough to see, just like we went from, you know, colored to Negro to black to African-American, I have also seen how that has changed from, I don't even know what you called it before, maybe EOO, and then it went to diversity and it went to, or race talk, and it went to diversity, then diversity and inclusion, diversity, equity, inclusion, and now there's another one that I have to think about that's, that's on the, yeah, 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 see, I see that face. It's on the horizon, too, but it, um, I think the reason I sort of kind of dismissed it, but just sort of made note that it was out there, is that it really is kind of a repeat. If you talk about inclusion, that pretty much covers the ter territory. I think it was a word, it starts with a B, um, and I can't think of what it is, but yeah, just kind of be on the lookout. When you see it, it's like, oh, that must so, be what she was talking about. So, so I'm already behind. Okay, that's awesome. Well, it doesn't okay. take much. It moves kind of fast. <laughs> Um, well, it, you know, when I was thinking about it, talking to you today, you know, I, I imagine that teaching about diversity hasn't always been easy. I'm just assuming. Um, but I've also heard you talk about how rewarding it is um, because of what your students tell you. You've been seems like you've been surprised time over time. So can you share some of those those moments? You know, Didi, I never wanted to teach. 
<laughs> Never. And I am such an introvert. <laughs> Which, for anybody who has ever been in my class, is like, okay, I don't know what you're smoking, but you need to quit. Because it is yeah, totally distorting yeah. what it, whatever it is that's going on in your head. But it's true. And... Um, but, but again, I know how the universe works for me. And it ended up just sort of putting this in my lap. And as it turns out, it was what I was born to do. And the thought that I could do more than just transfer pure knowledge of the law was part of what went with what it was that I was called to teach because I was asked to teach employment law, which did not exist at the time. Um, one of the people I was working for at the agency that I was working at, the Federal Labor Relations Authority, had been the assistant to the head of New York's Public Employee Relations Commission. And he had re the, the head had retired to Florida and was at the University of North Florida, which is how I came to be there. Because when he went there to teach, what he said to the department chair for management was, there's something I've been seeing for the entire time that I have been involved in employee relations, and I'm not quite sure what to do about it, but I'm thinking maybe we could have a class in it. And what it is, is that when people come to bring their claims, there are always claims about race and gender, and they get ignored. They, like, totally get ignored because the people don't know what to do with them. Now, remember, it was 1982 when I came there. The law had been passed in 1964. Okay, so we are still at that really early stage. In fact, I went back to the office when I got the offer, and I said, y'all, they want me to, this is a room full of labor lawyers. I said, they want me to teach employment law. What is that? Does anybody know what that is? And they were all like, employment law? Never heard of it. Hmm. And I said, I'm not quite sure what it's about. I mean, I know what he said, but like, I don't know, how do you teach that? And as it turns out, I had to figure it out on my own with that being the only guide. And I'm a lawyer, so of course what I did was I went to the cases. And without ever thinking that at some point I would end up writing the first textbook that dealt with this as an issue, because you can imagine that if if employers are losing millions of dollars on claims from things that were just avoidable, why wouldn't you be teaching that in a college of business? I mean, it's all about how to make the money, right? And how to do it hopefully ethically and all of that. So it just seemed stupid not to teach those <laughs> things. I mean, it's like, duh, you're teaching everything else you think they need to know. But with this, it was different, and I realized because I was also doing outside consulting, which I did not plan to do, it's just that I ended up realizing that I was used to having a 12-month salary, and somewhere near the beginning of spring, uh, I thought, you know what, when spring is over, I don't have any money until fall starts again. And, and people told me, well, you know, maybe you can go to continuing ed and start something with them, and that's how doing the consulting started. And when I would do the consulting, people, we would have these conversations about how they made these decisions in the workplace that led to liability. And it occurred to me, well, I can do something about that. I mean, I can teach you how to think, you know, and just sort of knowing the law is not enough. 
you walk in the room knowing you're not supposed to discriminate on the basis of gender, but you don't realize that that's what you're doing when you say, oh my God, you were so good, so good, that we're going to give you MBA student who has just done a one-year internship, we're going to give you the offer to come here. And you're so good, I'm going to tell you how good you are. You're so good that if you were a guy, we would have paid you 50% more. That's how good you are. Can you imagine? No clue, no clue that that's gender discrimination. So being able to do the work of taking what I see happen in the workplace and put it in the classroom was extremely important, but in order to do that, I had to deal with how people make decisions in the first place. Why would you say that to your female MBA student in the first place when I don't think you ever wanted to actually discriminate on the basis of gender? So like, what's going on that makes it so that's what came out of your mouth? Well, that meant we had to deal with what was in your head that made that come out of your mouth. That's where the work gets done. And that is absolutely transformative, transformative for students. Now, this isn't the world according to Dawn. This is, y'all, you tell me the stuff that you've picked up, and we'll talk about how that translates into decisions that are made in the workplace. So it's not me, but when they end up getting introduced to themselves and what has actually taken place, and you're seeing that now uh, across the country in a real big way, um, they are absolutely shocked. What's today? Monday, Friday evening, I got an email from the secretary for the department, who, of course, I haven't seen in three months, right? And it said, like, sharing the love or something. So I'm like, okay. My motto is it's all about love, so whatever you got Mm -hmm. to say, I'm willing to listen. Well, she had downloaded somebody's Instagram post, and it was about me. And the student said that as a white male, he had never thought about these kinds of issues, about his white privilege, until he walked into my classroom. And he said, you know, unfortunately, I just did not live a life that made it so I had to do that. But once I saw it, it totally transformed, and he put in big letters, my life. And he wrote, thank you, DBA. I would have never even seen that if she had not sent that to me. But that's, I'm used to that. I'm I'm used to seeing that. But I usually get it directly. People will tell me directly that stuff. I get those emails all the time. But to just sort of have it out there in the universe as this is what you took away from me. Um, And that was Friday. Thursday, I got an email from the development office that told me that there were um, members of a fraternity pledge class from 2001 and between June 5th and that day, which was the, what, 26th or so, they had gotten almost $17,000 in donations to my scholarship fund from these people. And they wanted to know if, because of that, I wanted to send them a, uh, a, a video to thank them. How quick could I get that one done? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that yeah. was enormous. And their cards that I had been sent that Monday that just said, you know, you've gotten these, and, and they had wonderful little notes on them. 
the cards were just incredible. They talked about the same thing, how transformative it was and how not only was it uh, important for their lives, but now for the lives of their families, because that was, you know, almost 20 years ago. I'm used to that. That's what keeps me hopeful. That's what makes me stand in my truth. When I say things can change, and they can change very quickly, once people are operating with the correct information, I mean that. You cannot convince me that that's not true. I've just seen it too much. Now, I don't care how unradical that sounds. I don't care how Pollyanna-ish that sounds. You can't tell me I didn't live what I lived. That's what happens. I assume that most people, and I know that this does not include all, most people don't want to discriminate. They just sort of are involved in their lives and try to do the right thing. What they don't understand is the same thing I didn't understand when my dad said that sentence to me. I wasn't thinking about his context being so different that he would have viewed that such a different way than I did. And that's the way most people are. And doesn't that make sense if you think about where most people live, who they're exposed to, how they grow up, they're not used to doing a whole bunch of mixing up. So what they walk away with is reflective of what they've been exposed to. If you live on a farm, the cow poop is not a big deal. I didn't grow up on a farm. Cow poop is a big deal to me, okay? I don't want to be around it. I don't want to smell it. That's just not a big deal to somebody who grew up on a farm. It's the same way with people. If your idea, because you live in a fairly homogeneous neighborhood, which most of us do, if I happen to be one of the people that is not homogeneous in my homogeneous neighborhood. <laughs> but if you live in that neighborhood and, and you really don't do any mixing personally, in your church, in your social groups, in your school, you know, you see them sitting over there at the table, but you don't really deal with them any more than to say, hey, your idea of who these others are, whoever they are, is going to come from some other place. Usually it's the news or music or something you hear. Well, I don't know people who end up on the news for murdering people, for robbing people, from doing carjackings. I don't know those people. Okay, my exposure is quite different. So when I see those people, I don't feel the same way. I'm not afraid of them because I have experience that tells me those people that show up on the news are outliers. If you don't have that experience that I do, mm -hmm. that's not what's in your head. And I understand that. But most people don't realize that that's what they're operating on the basis of. So this guy that, that, that said to this to my MBA student, he just sort of was in his head about who women were. They were people who probably would have been home taking care of the kids if they weren't these raging feminists, okay? Well, that's fine for your personal view. I would fight to the nth degree for you to have that personal view. But when you bring it into the workplace, that's a different story. You can't operate on the basis of it. So being able to expose people to those things and not even have to say, so you know you better do the right thing now, right? I don't have to say that. They never realized they were doing the wrong thing. And once they learn information that changes it, which is what? That's what education does. Then they're just going to act a different way. They just are going to do that. And, and what I love is that, especially in a workplace, you get these people who, you know, are very closed and, you know, in terms of their language and stuff like that. 
And in fact, I had one on Friday in a session that I did. Who was the first email I got when I got out of that session? It was this guy saying, you are amazing. Oh my God, I can't believe what you did. Thank you. And you allowed us to be able to now know what we can do individually as well as collectively to be able to change things, to make them what we thought they were in the first place. That's what I do. And I love it that people are willing to be open to that journey. And again, because you weren't trying to you know, be awful in the first place, it would only make sense that you would change once you found out what you were doing. That's what that's what we usually do. That's what our fights are about with our significant others, you know. <laughs> I want you to change and do what I need you to do. Look at it from my point of view. And once you do, it's like, oh, okay, well, now that I see that that's what, what's bothering you, yeah, we can fix that. Now, did you always have this sort of, well, this approach of, I don't know, assuming the best about people? <laughs> And coming at it that way, or did, was this something you sort of re- developed? Like, not everyone takes this approach, Don. Yeah, this, yeah, yeah. This I issue, realize so. that. But, but remember now, I'm operating with that on the basis of my reality. Hmm. Okay, this isn't just like I'm putting this on this. This is this is what this is. Um, I can't say I've ever been really like a close person. I mean it. You know, I'm a lawyer, and I'm used to looking at things to the nth degree and looking for the negatives in it because that's what I have to prevent liability from attaching to. So in that sense, I recognize those things are there, but I can't deny the reality that I live every day. I see what happens to those students. I've, we have um, discussions in my class every day about things that are so surprising to most people, and that is putting it very mildly, uh, until I actually wrote a paper that I delivered about how you have these conversations with people because I allow my students to ask any question they want, no holes barred, about any of the categories in Title VII, okay, race, color, religion, gender, national origin, and I include, and thank goodness now, based on the Supreme Court, I can legally include sexual orientation and gender identity. Now, you would think, first of all, that it would be hard to get people to even ask ask those questions, right? Mm -hmm. Well, if you provide a safe space, they'll do that. And I've just lived that too much. Thousands of questions. You would also think that in having those discussions that they would get to be tense and all of that. No, that's not what we do. What we do is we have fun with those questions and they really get answered. But when you think about it, what would the tension be around? It would be around people being pissed off that somebody doesn't know something and how dare you do this. If I don't know, I don't know. That's different than I know when I say fuck you. Oh, sorry, can I not say that on this? I mean, that's Absolutely. just, you know. Absolutely. You oh, can. good, okay. You know, that's a very different situation, and I yeah. acknowledge that there are those people who will never change. That's not who I'm talking to. They want to do that. They have a right to do that, and I'm not trying to change their mind. I'm not wasting my time over there. Hmm. On the other hand, are people who... They really don't care who you are. You could be a Martian and we'd all be running in the other direction and they would be saying, but we're all God's creatures. Fine, you deal with them. I'm not dealing with them. (laughs) But most of us are somewhere in the middle, which means that we can be talked to. We can 
be moved to do better because we now are not operating with the same facts that made us not do better in the first place. Now, whether you say sort of born with that or I came to it, I don't know. I mean, it's just, it's just how I roll. You know, I'm not going to assume the worst, even on a bad day. You know, if you, and this comes up all the time, actually, I just thought about that. Um, I was in the store one day and I was about the fourth person in line in a department store and everybody before me was white and they paid with a credit card and they gave the card. It was, you know, put into the machine and that was that. I get there and she says, okay, can I see your ID? And I said, oh, that's interesting. I said, why? And she said, well, because we ask everybody for their ID when they pay with a credit card. I said, no, I was four people back and you didn't ask any of those other three people to pay, uh, to give you ID. And she said, oh yeah, that's our policy. We always do it. I said, you didn't do it with the other ones. That's just fact. <laughs> okay, you either did it or you didn't. You didn't do it. She starts crying and screaming and saying, I'm not racist. That's not a word, that's a word I rarely use, okay? Because it's meaningless. I don't care whether this woman is racist or not. It, it is irrelevant. The thing is, did you require something from me that you didn't require from them? Oh, and by the way, I happen to be the only black person. Okay. Now, I could have really felt bad about that, but I understand that's not about me. It's not personal. She's just grown up in a situation that gives her those kinds of ideas about who it is that I am. And I'm not wasting my time, frankly, on dealing with that. Another time I was with my daughter and we were at Stegman coming into the parking lot, or we were in the parking lot, but we didn't know how to get to the place from there. I'd never parked in Stegman's lot before. So we follow these people who are headed to the elevator and we're going to get on the elevator too, only the doors close and they didn't make a move. All of them were white, didn't make a move to try to stop that door from closing. So my daughter and I looked at each other and it's like, you know, this crap happens. So like, whatever. So we push the button, wait, 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 wait. Finally, it comes back. The door is open and there stood those people. <laughs> I have no clue why those people did not manage to be able to get off. It was the universe <laughs> at work, okay? They were still there, and every single person on that elevator looked like they were, you know, deer caught in the headlights. Everybody knew what had happened. I immediately had to think about what I wanted to do. Now, I could ruin my day by giving a lot of negative energy to this. I could use it as a teachable moment. Uh, I had my daughter with me and, you know, your mama bear instincts, you know, sort of come into that. But I'm a teacher. That's what I do. And I don't mind using teachable moments because I understand that that's how they happen in life. But very quickly, I had to think about what I wanted to do. So what I did was I got on the elevator and instead of giving them the side eye or having this conversation with my daughter that was loud enough for them to hear about what had been done, I just said to them, oh, you tried to leave us that time, but it didn't work, did it? <laughs> and everybody started laughing. And everybody, not only did it release the tension that was there, but they all, we all understood what had happened. They knew that we knew, we knew that they knew. 
I know that they will never do what they did again without thinking about what happened on that elevator. If I had taken that negatively, if I had taken it personally, and it can't be personal because they don't know me, then it would have had a very different outcome. But for me, that's just not a good way to go through the world because that is on me. You know, they don't care how I feel. I have to care how I feel and take care of myself and my high blood pressure and all of that. So I just, I sort of just don't look at the world that way. You can absolutely convince me that you don't have good intentions and that it's worth, it's, it's not worth my time to deal with you, but that's not how I'm going to approach you. Well, that sounds pretty practical. Well, I try to be. I am a Capricorn. (laughs) We are very practical. Um, And so that's a perfect segue into what I have learned you are going to do with some of your retirement time. So you're sort of launching a consultancy, so you just you can't stop and you there's no reason to stop so can you talk a little bit about practical diversity i I did look at the website and i listened to your ted talk but you know for those who have not um you know could you talk a little bit about that because it's you know it's actually not launching a a consultancy okay it's continuing to do it you know and giving people a way they can find me and and this is nothing that i sort of set out to do It's just that I understand that I have skills that people need. And if I didn't believe it before, I have certainly come to believe it in the last, what, four weeks or so. Four weeks or so, yeah. Um, And my website, I had sort of, I had gotten the website because I knew I probably needed to do something to just sort of have a presence once I left the university after the fall semester. Um, But I got so many uh, requests for information after the George Floyd and Amy Cooper situations until it occurred to me, I was also, it was, that happened as I was teaching Maymester and it was online Maymester. So the whole thing was online as opposed to halfway through the way we had done in the spring. So I had to redesign my class um, to be something that instead of meeting three days or three hours a day for five days a week for three weeks, I had to be able to sort of hold you at that computer. And it's not a class where I do exams. So I needed to have some way to have you there and get something and feel okay that I had, had, had actually done that. Um, so I used videos. Now, I had, these are videos that I had been gathering over the years because they were awesome at what they did, but we rarely get a chance to deal with them in class. So this was like a really good way for me to be able to, 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 to deal with students in addition to the lectures that I did. So I had them go through, look at videos, and um, do reflection papers on them, and, and they were sort of loosely grouped, right? And about halfway through, the George Floyd situation hit. And that day, the students had turned in papers about a video they had seen where a black guy and a white guy were trying to break into a car. And the white guy had actually set this up because he had had the experience of having people look at him real strange when he had left his keys out of the car, he was white, left his keys out, called AAA. The AAA guy came in his uniform, was black, 
And all of a sudden, people started looking at every this whole thing real strange. So he thought, is this like a one-shot deal? Maybe we should try this again and see what happens. So he set up this experiment where he tried to get into his car for half an hour, and nothing happened, including the police going right by, nobody giving him any weird looks. And he had his black friend do it, and literally in two minutes, the cops were there putting this guy upside the wall and using ne- negative uh, curse words to him. So they had just seen that. There was another one um, that was based on a TV show, uh, What Would You Do?, where it was the same sort of situation, only it involved a bicycle. And they also added to the mix a white woman, young, good-looking white woman, who, and the outcome was virtually the same, except for the white woman, people actually asked if they could help her steal this bike. Okay, steal this bike that they were calling the police on the black guy for thinking he was stealing, okay? So they had just turned that in, and then they Mm -hmm. saw what happened with George Floyd and Amy Cooper. And I always include Amy Cooper because that, especially as a segue into what happened to George Floyd, set up the whole thing to be perceived in, in, in really the 3D that it was. So... I realized, and the students talked about how powerful it was to have watched the videos that they watched, especially in such a short period of time, and to now go through this experience that they were having about what had happened with George Floyd. And when I say what they were having, they were experiencing it through things like their Facebook pages where people they knew and loved, had known all their lives, were posting, and the students were like two through they were in such a different place because of what had happened in class until they really wanted to shut these people down, like literally block them, but it was people they had grown up with. But they said, time after time after time, Dr. B.A., I cannot believe that that would have been me an hour, a week and a half ago. And just in that week and a half, what I have learned has completely changed how I view the world. Just like the guy said, you know, in big letters, life, change your perception about life. So I decided with people asking me for the resources, why wouldn't I just use what I already had? Um, And it's free for people. You know, practicaldiversity.com came from, practical diversity was my TED talk, which after five years still gets not only views, and it's up to 124,000, I think now, But it also, I get calls from all over, like National Security Agency, how about that? Okay, and I'm like, are you sure you want me? Because, like, I talk about love and stuff. And they're like, (laughs) oh, yeah, we saw everybody, and you're the one we want. National Labor Relations Board. I mean, I've had many people contact me through that, so I thought, well, I'll just go ahead and name it Practical Diversity. But the real work for that site for me comes in the heart work section, and this is where I put those things. I love it because it's a sort of one-stop shop, for people who say, I'm not quite sure what's going on. I mean, I know it's not good, but like, I don't understand this whole thing. And why would you? It's like me asking you to know Vietnamese history. What do you know about that? And yes, you can live in this country your whole life and never really understand what brought it to the point where people would be out in the street rioting. It's just not on your radar screen. This helps you to see that. And it It allows you to do it in your own space, in your own time. I actually ask people 
to do reflection papers after they see the videos, because this is totally for you, for you to be able to understand. And if we just look at it, we have a tendency to kind of dismiss it. Okay, I saw that one, so let me go on to the next one. But if you actually have to do the reflection, it makes you think about it a different way and bring in your own experiences and see how it meshes with those. Um, I'm going to continue to add to the site because I come across this stuff all the time. And I have to say that it's not just for whites, it's for anybody. I have students in my class who are black students who when we do certain videos, they end up writing me that they tear up because they can't believe they didn't know this stuff. Well, if they didn't know it, you know white folk are usually not going to know it. But it's stuff that if you don't understand it, you have no clue of what's going on. The biggest sort of thing that makes people pissed off about my class is their understanding, their realization that all of this was there and nobody told them about it in the first place. They are so angry that they thought they knew history, that they thought they were getting it, and it turns out they weren't. And they end up saying, like, what are they trying to, you know, save us from? This is just history. And it makes a difference if we would know something like this. Why would they try to keep this from us? It's like, I don't know, but now you know. And my thing is, once you know, you can't mm-hmm. unknow. Yeah. And then I like that when I saw the sort of opening frame for the TED Talk, Practical Diversity title, it, there's an embedded phrase in there, act it. Ah, um, yes. That so nicely done. That's yes. That's, that, yes. Yeah, that's very, you know, now that you know, you know, what what are you going to do? Yeah, and take yeah. And go from there. Well, did you like my quilts? I did. Yes. I did. I love that flow did you of the see quilts. That? I think that, yes. yeah, it works very well. I started, I have to work through it more, but I look through, work through some of it. Well, all um, of those are quilts that I made. And I love beautiful. it that my web developers figured out how to put that in there. Well, they're be- they are beautiful. All handmade, not wow. machine. Wow. Yeah. Um, but that's part of what I have to do that sort of helps me do what I do because it connects mm-hmm. me to my ancestors. So mm-hmm. it's extremely important for me. It grounds me. It gives me a safe space to be able to think about these issues in a way that I don't mm-hmm. if I'm sitting at a computer. So I have creative, to have my time doing that. Creative outlet, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, creative outlet plus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you to, because I just recently, as you know, earlier, I think it was a lot, sometime last week, we you were part of a Terry um, discussion about race. Um, that was that was really obviously necessary and good to have. Um, you're also on the Terry Diversity Advisory Board, an inclusion advisory board, so... Um, but you mentioned Gone with the Wind, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, which has its own sort of metaphor. And, mm-hmm. and even in profiles of the university that are in Old Business Week um, for MBA profiles, they refer to the campus as uh, very much like the a Gone with the Wind type scenery. So, But you, you talked about Gone with the Wind in, in that presentation, and I, I wanted to ask you to sort of talk about that again here so people could hear it. Yeah. For me, uh, and and what I was talking about was the difference between what that movie would mean for somebody white looking at it versus somebody black looking at it. For me, Gone with the Wind, my parents saw Gone with the Wind when it first came out. So when it was re-released in probably 67 or 65, somewhere around in there, 
it was a really big deal. And I love the fact that I got to go see something that my parents saw when they were dating. Um, and then when I looked at the actual movie, which was six hours in the movie theater, right? And I went with my boyfriend, who did not turn out to be my husband. Um, it was, for me, what I was seeing on the stage was what, or on the, the screen, was what this would have been for my ancestors, okay? So when I ask in class, has anybody ever seen it? And they tell me yes, and I ask, you know, like, what part did you like? Well, you know, all the white women are talking about the clothes, like how awesome the clothes were, you know, these nice big outfits. And um, the guys talk about, you know, the war and being able to be a hero and stuff like that. And that is so such a wonderful all-in-one place that we can all relate to simile for how differently we all see life. What I'm looking at when you have that opening scene of Scarlett sitting on the front uh, porch with the Tarleton brothers, the twins, um, what I'm looking at, and she's, you know, fluffing her little dress all around her, is nice dress, but like, how the hell did my ancestors wash that thing? Like, and then ironing it? I know what it's like to iron ruffles. What? That thing must have taken them days to deal with, just for her to sit out there and, you know, just be playing mm -hmm. around. When you look at the difference of what it is we would be looking at, it just goes to show you how different our realities are. Each reality is absolutely true for what it is. You can't say mine was a stupid way to look at it. I can't say yours was a frivolous way to look at it. You are looking at what made sense based on what was in your head. Now, with greater thinking, if you were only looking at that dress as a nice, wonderful dress and you weren't thinking about the other part of it, like my ancestors having to wash that thing for you, plus it had velvet on it too, whoa. If you weren't looking at that part, you may find yourself thinking, I really haven't thought about that part of it. I mean, I just, you know, that's kind of not what anybody talks about. But it is absolutely a part of the picture. It is what allowed that situation to be there. That is, it allowed for her to be able to sit out there and sit on that porch in leisure like she was doing. And you saw the difference when the war was over and she did not have that anymore or when they were going through the war. That's why, for me, saying that somebody thinking about that a different way um, is not real instructive. It, it's just not real helpful. Now, if what I'm doing, if, if, if I'm white and I'm saying, oh, I love that, and now that I know that there's a difference, it took a toll. People who were not paid made that dress what it was, and they had a price to pay for me to be able to sit out there with those Tarleton boys like that. That's a different story. You know, that's the part that people are clinging on to, I think, that, that people feel like is represented by the Confederate memorials, for instance. Mm -hmm. But to say that my view of that would be the same, that we would all feel the same way about that movie, no, no I'm not thinking about that. <laughs> I wouldn't have been sitting on that porch. 
okay? I would have bring, been bringing Miss Scarlett some little stuff for her and her little folks to drink. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and I think it's yeah. important for us to keep that in mind because these things keep popping up all the time. In fact, I taught a first-year Odyssey course called, seriously, y'all still talking about slavery? Because that's how it comes up for, for students in, at this point in time. They can't imagine why this is still important. Well, the reason it's important is because it never went away. It changed the, the, the format of it changed. Some parts of it changed. But we still have many, many vestiges of that system still around. And we tend to kind of lump them all together. And we have to do the important business of making sure that doesn't happen too. Now, there are not a whole lot of things that we can take out of that, but I wrote a letter yesterday to the Washington Post, a letter to the editor, because I grew up at 13th and East Capitol Street in D.C. It was at Lincoln Park. And I, for my parents had lived at Lincoln Park for all but maybe two of the years of my life. And it is named Lincoln Park because there is a statue there of Lincoln um, and, and in the statue he's standing and he has a copy of the Emancipation Proclamation and then he also uh, has at his feet uh, a slave with chains that were broken um, I, I don't know thanking him or you know whatever well that was commissioned I spent my life skating around that thing and I spent a lot of time thinking about that statue never thinking it would ever come back or be a part of my life. It was just, I was a kid. And it's a very, um, you know, it's just not like somebody on a horse. I mean, it was, it would make you look at it. It was compelling. And I have very often wondered if that was a part of what sort of started to go into me at a very young age. Because again, all but two years of my life growing up were spent there at that park. Because seeing that, you couldn't help but be affected by it and understand what had happened, that this man had somehow broken the chains for these people. Didn't like the idea so much of them, you know, bowing, but considering what he had done and what had happened and when it was, it it made sense. You know, I mean, looking at it now, yeah, I don't want anybody bowing to anybody. but, But the thing about that I love the most probably about that piece is that, first of all, I should tell you that when my family moved to 13th and East Capitol, it was all white and all the white folks left, okay? As if my family was going to make your property values go down, you know, whoa, Mm -hmm. whatever. They also later came back because they realized how stupid that was and they wanted that property back again. So the house that my dad paid $13,000 for, my brother sold for $400,000. But part of what's happening now is that they want to have the uh, statue removed because visually when you look at it, it looks like a Confederacy statue. It's not. This statue was paid for by freed slaves, and it was erected in 1876, okay, when construction ended, the same same year, around the same time construction ended. They, we all know this, but I mean, it is important to say, they didn't have any money, mm-hmm. okay? They were left, they were taken out of slavery with nothing but whatever they had on their backs, nothing, 
Okay, so for them, first of all, to have the audacity, I love it, the audacity to commission, to commission a statue. Oh, my God, I love it. Mm. And then to think that they would be able to pay for it and to do it. Oh, my God. Do not put that in the same category. Don't put it in the same category as somebody who in 1913 decided that they wanted to reassert white superiority and white supremacy and, you know, keep this whole old stupid story about what really brought about the Civil War, which was not the idea that we were just trying to help these people out, but instead we wanted to use them for our economic benefit and slavery, we were willing to go to war to fight for that. Putting that in the same category to me is just, it's, it's wrong. And it does an injustice to those people who were willing to put whatever they had that they could have used that money for, they used it instead for this. That was a sacrifice. And to me, when you just tear that down, you dishonor them and where they were at the time. And you also take away something that is a really important piece of history. And I don't like the idea of erasing history. Now, you know, it, it's not, to me, it's not erasing history to put it in its proper perspective. So if you want to have that stuff and put it in a, a museum somewhere where it belongs and can be contextualized in history, I'm, I'm, I'm all for that. You can take down every one of those Confederate statues. They just don't have a place. <laughs> In this world where this is so different from where that was, okay, I also sort of just couldn't get with the program of how you take people who were actually going against your country and they lost the war and making those people the ones the statutes raised here. I don't get that. I mean, that, that just doesn't make sense to me. But, but to me... Lumping all of that together doesn't do any of us any good. And we have to be willing to separate the baby from the bathwater. Yeah, interrogate history, right? Add some context. Yeah, and, and oh, have absolutely. Have conversations, make yeah. the decisions together. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and even, you know, that's what they've decided to do with Gone with the Wind. I mean, I'm not sure whether mm. I care so much or not, whether they bring it back. I think it is important for it's, what it's it a is. It's historical artifact. But, but contextualizing yeah. it, absolutely. And they've said that they yeah. will not show it again without having, at the beginning, a context for it, a context statement. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, um, well, any final thoughts for incoming students before I let you go? Yes. One of the things that I do... Um, Every year is, I do a lot of speaking, but one of my favorites is uh, speaking to the students through the Georgia Days program. Uh, I also do it for a lot of the graduate programs as well. But Georgia Days is, is special to me because it was actually started by one of my students who started out clueless and he ended up creating this program. And when I say clueless, he was a mixed student who, who's, he lived with his white mother because his, his dad and his mother were uh, divorced. So he literally came up to me and said, I don't understand anything you're talking about when we started talking about the background for Title VII, uh, where we were talking about what the world was like, you know, discrimination, racism, stuff like that. Um, and he asked if he could come see me and just talk about it sometimes. And I said, yes. And he did. And the next year, he ends up coming up with this idea of how to get and keep 
um, black students at the university, which was phenomenal. And I'm a lawyer, so when he told me bring a bunch of high school to cl- school students to class <laughs> to, to, to the University of Georgia for the weekend, I said, you must be crazy. Do you know who you're talking to? I would never say yes to that. Well, thank goodness he ignored me, and he ended up <laughs> not only doing so well with that program that we got a lot of students come back, but the president's office took it on, and they now run it twice a year. And every year that, every two, twice a year when I meet with those students, I always ask them, is there anybody here that told you, who, who had somebody tell them, don't come to the University of Georgia? I always have everybody practically raise their hands. And I say, why? And they tell me why. You know, because they say they don't like black people up there because you'll be alone, people will call your names, all this stuff. And I tell them, go back home and tell them that it's a new day at the University of Georgia. That's not who we are anymore. And I honor the fact, because I'm one of those people, I would, would have been around when the University of Georgia was integrated. Now, I was pretty young, I was only 10. But I was, you know, that would be something that was so startling if you lived in this state that you wouldn't be likely to forget it. And if you now are thinking about bringing your, having your precious person that you have poured everything that you have into as a parent or a grandparent, come there and be treated in ways that you remember happened. It's like, no, you're not doing that to my kid because we love them. We want them to be treated with the kind of honor and respect that we would have. And I tell them, make sure you let them know that that's precisely what's going to happen. We are going to treat you like they would want you to be treated. So just the other day, last week, um, in fact, on Thursday, I met with a group, and one of the people in the group, this was a, a virtual di- uh, diversity group, um, said, I had you for Georgia Days. Now, this is an employee of the university. And I said, what? She said, I was actually on my way to another school. I was going to Spelman. I heard you talk, and you made me think I had a place at the University of Georgia. And she said, I now have three degrees from the University of Georgia. I said, well, it sounds like you found your place. And she said, I sure did. You were right. I said, so I didn't lie to you, right? I want every MBA student to know that, that whatever you may have heard about the University of Georgia that that may have made you hesitate, and I'm not just saying black folks, because, you know, white folks don't want to be associated with a place that they feel is sort of retro like that either. And certainly, you know, international students don't. Even if they don't know the whole picture, they know that's not the picture they want. Everybody has a role here at the University of Georgia. And I feel we have a president that so cares about every student, every student, feeling like they belong here and that they are a part of it and that there is a place for them. And for me, that is really what all the work I have done is about. I want everybody to feel like they belong here, whether it's based on race or gender or sexual orientation or um, gender identity. I will stop you in a second if you are a guy with a dress on. Oh, yes, I will. And I will tell you, thank you for doing that. I will do the same thing if you're wearing a yarmulke, because I understand that that's how the work of inclusion happens. That's how it happens. And being able to make people feel like that 
they should feel it everywhere they are at this university, everywhere they are, whether they're talking to a staff member, they're sitting in class, and if they don't, and there's something we can do about that, I want them to feel safe enough to know that they can come and say that and know, given the context, I know y'all wanted me to feel okay here and I'm not feeling it because that person was dealing with microaggression or something. Know that that is something that we would welcome. Now, I'm not saying we can take care of everything, Mm -hmm. but I want every single person who hears this to believe that this is the place you belong that honors you as a student and whatever your individual journey is. And as MBA students coming in, that journey will not be easy, but (laughs) knowing we have your back ought to make you feel real good about being able to take that journey. You came to the right place. Well, I I agree wholeheartedly. Oh, I guess you would, wouldn't you? <laughs> I agree wholeheartedly. I really thank you for your time, taking time out of your day. You are so um, welcome. To talk and do this, and we'll get it posted and share it out to the world. So thank you, thank you, thank you. It's great to talk to you. All right, Dee Dee. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you again, Dr. DBA, for talking with me today. I think there are many takeaways from this conversation, one of which is that for many of us here at UGA, there is no line dividing teaching and service. And many of our faculty, just like Dr. DBA, are experts in their industries and share their expertise through their research, talks, and consulting work. The themes of this episode reminded me of my conversation with Rashi Malcolm of Rashi's Cuisine. You are community. I've met many people during my time in Athens who are here for many reasons, one of them being they knew that this is where they were most needed and could do the most good. So thank you again for listening to this episode. There will be links in the show notes to the resources Dr. DBA mentioned. If you want to connect with admissions, we will be at some virtual recruiting events this summer and fall, and there will be virtual ways to connect with us directly. So check our website and events page for updates at terry.uga.edu slash mba slash full-time. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and don't forget to check out our YouTube playlist. Until next time, stay safe, be kind, and go dogs. Go dogs.